0: Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship. I will tell you that at the end of this Thanksgiving week, um, I want to express my gratitude for our church family. You know, I live out here on McClellan, and so almost every day I get to drive right by the church on this road. And I get to express my gratitude. And what I do is I envision the people that I see here on Sunday mornings. And uh, able to thank the Lord for different individuals and families and people who mean so much to me. So uh, just before the Lord, I am so grateful to him for for having you as my church family. I'm also grateful for the opportunity to preach this morning. And would just ask you in this moment to pray with me as we open up uh, a new book and uh, a new brief study during this Advent season. Uh, The book of Ruth. So, would you bow your head with me as we ask for God's blessing? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to assemble under the banner of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can sing and pray and preach and read and celebrate your goodness your grace, and your love for us. And so before we go any further this morning, Father, we want to say thank you for invading our lives and penetrating our hearts and changing us from the inside out. Thank you that you have removed that heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh that beats for the glory of your name. This is your work. We thank you for it. And now, Lord, we want to pray that you will give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, that we may comprehend your glory, your awesomeness, your wonder, your faithfulness, and that we might leave today changed, transformed by the refreshment and the renewal of your grace being poured out into our hearts. We pray this in the Savior's name, Jesus, amen. Life is good. You may have seen the bumper stickers. Life is certainly good, but it's also hard. It's good in the sense that every single day we have the privilege to see and smell and taste and hear and experience That which is beautiful and wonderful and interesting and sometimes even amazing and incredible. It is good. But it's hard in the sense that life is not easy. It's not all laughs and giggles or rainbows and cupcakes. Life is layered and it's complex. And more often than not, even our greatest moments in life are tainted by the brokenness of life and the brokenness that we experience. To speak very personally on the matter, I can honestly say that my life is very, very, very good. But it's also hard, it's challenging. I consider myself to be one of the most privileged people on the face of the earth, having experienced so much of the great things in life. But I've also not escaped the pains of personal sickness, the death of people that I love, fractured relationships failure at my job pride in my heart conflict with people who are good if i counted the things in my life that have been tough the list would be very 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 long but there again i've awaited at the top of the stairs on christmas morning with a with a pulse of 110 waited to be released downstairs to see if i received that bike and i did you know and and it was just amazing i've I've been able to go to Yosemite National Park with my wife Jamie and climb up to the very top of Half Dome and overlook the Sierra Nevadas and just feel the electricity of God's glory as you realize how wonderful and awesome and infinite he really is. I've cried tears of joy at the successes and even the salvation of one of my children. I've pumped my fist in the air at hitting a putt on the 18th green that meant something. I bear hugged a friend who gave his life to Jesus, but I've also dug a hole for my favorite pet and had to bury it. I've had to stand over the grave of my best friend. I've uh, been waited to walk into a doctor's office And expecting my heart to leap for joy at what I saw on a sonogram and I laid my eyes on a little baby that had no heartbeat at all. You know, life is full of ups and downs. It's both good and it's hard. And if you've lived for more than a minute on this planet, you know what I'm talking about. No matter how good it is, there's a sense in which a dark cloud hangs over the best of what we experience in this life. Because even in our greatest moments, my greatest moment, your greatest moment, we're also very aware that around the world, or even in next door neighbor, there are people who are undergoing conflict, or divorce, or abuse, or they've just received a diagnosis, or they're trusting in a false God. And so life is good, but it's also hard. And and ever since we were cast out of the Garden of Eden, it's been that way. And in the book of Ruth, God has recorded a story for us that we can see and touch and feel His goodness through the hardship of life. And he points us to where true hope and true happiness are really found, no matter how good or hard our lives may be at any given time. So if you would, if you're not already there, turn to the book of Ruth. It falls after Judges. So it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Kind of embedded in there is this small four-chapter book. And what God does right here in the book of Ruth is that he points us to the fact that he has a plan of redemption, and he's working that plan no matter how hard and difficult circumstances may be. We're going to read the entire chapter, chapter 1. To give you a little context, this is about 1100 B.C. It's uh, 3,000 years ago is when this takes place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, 50 miles to the east around the Dead Sea. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, In Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one wife was Orpah, and the name of the other wife, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman, was left without her two sons and without her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, that is Yahweh, grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, "No." We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? She's speaking here of the Leverite vow principle whereby an Israelite widow would need to marry the brother of her deceased husband. And that would be the way she could carry on the line. And so the reason she says, oh, or am I gonna be able to give birth and you wait for them to be born is because that was their only hope, or so they thought. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, stuck to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and to her gods elohim return after your sister-in-law but ruth said do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go i will go and where you lodge i will lodge your people shall be my people and your god my god where you die i will die and there i will be buried May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, Yahweh, has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned, from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What the Lord provides for us in this very beginning of the story of what we're going to see in a few weeks, this story of redemption, he he provides three scenes for us. And it's really all the backdrop of what we can experience and understand his plan of redemption to be as we near the end of the story. And so this morning, I just want to walk through those scenes with you so that it can set the stage for us of what we're going to experience in this book over the month of December. And so the very first scene that we see, if you're taking notes, is the scene of darkness. 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 And you can just put your eyes down on the passage because the very first thing is we see the darkness of sin. It says in the days when the judges ruled, in the days when the judges ruled. It is arguably the most dark, the most sinful, the most rebellious time of Israel's history in all of the Old Testament It tells us four different times in the book of Judges that there was no king in Israel, and the very last verse in Judges says that there was no king in Israel and that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the reason that every man did what was right in his own eyes is that collectively the people had rejected God as their king, and as a leader group, The judges, while some of them performed some wonderful acts of of, of valor and feat like Gideon and Samson, by and large, even Gideon and Samson were sinful and rebellious and fleshly and lustful and abandoned fidelity to the Lord. And so what happened, because there was a lack of godly leadership in the nation of Israel, every man, every couple, every family did what they thought was right, right? It was the darkness of sin in the nation of Israel. And I want to just press the pause button on the exposition for one moment and remind us that godly leadership is not a given. It doesn't just happen. Even in today's church, You can't just just think, oh, well, I'm just gonna have godly leaders wherever I go and I'm gonna sit under godly preaching and I'm gonna have godly, humble men who are going to cast vision. This is just gonna happen because that's just what happens everywhere. It doesn't happen everywhere. So my encouragement to you, church, and if I could look in the mirror right now, is to thank God for our leaders, to pray for them, to encourage them because godly leadership is not a given. We see that in Judges. We see that everywhere. And let's praise God for the ones that we have. All right, press play again. We see the the darkness of famine. Now, I don't think that the famine and the darkness of sin are are disjointed or removed from one another. If you read all of of the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy and then you read Joshua and Judges what you realize is there's this pattern. This pattern where God declares his love, his covenant faithfulness, his hesed, said which is used in this chapter, his loyal love for his people, and they pledge their love for him and their fidelity to him, and we're gonna worship you and love you, and then all of a sudden, neighboring nations come around, and they offer their personal gods and their deities and their ritual worship and their sexual immorality, and Israel says, oh, I'm enticed by that. We need to join in on that. We'll still worship Yahweh, but we'll get in on this too, and, and all of a sudden, they're sinning and they're idolatrous and they're rebellious, and then all of a sudden God sends to judge them and to discipline them, those nations to rule over them and to oppress them. And that's exactly what happens. And they don't like that oppression. They don't like being under the rule. And so they cry out for God's mercy and they cry out for God's grace. And God delivers them because he's that kind of God. And yet they continue with the rebellion after a while. And the same cycle goes over. And God ultimately judges them sometimes through famine or drought or some other way. And it is very, likely in this moment that they are experiencing the punishment or the discipline of Yahweh because of their rebellion against him. And that's what Israel is experiencing. There's no food. They can't they can't have nourishment. The the vision is is that children are struggling to have the nourishment they need to grow. Husbands are having are struggling to be able to work in the fields or to plow because there's there's no water that's that's giving nutrients to the crops. And then there's this darkness that we see because Elimelech, whose name means God is my king. That's what the word means. He essentially says, family, we've got to move up and leave out of the nation of which Yahweh rules and go find food and nourishment and provision elsewhere. Now, some believe that Elimelech's decision was sinful some believe he was just having to do what he had to do to provide for his family but regardless of whether it was sinful or whether it was not sinful what we can say it was it was likely unwise in the in the manner that he did it because he's leaving a place and a people where there are those who their remnant who call Yahweh their god and worship him and they're going to a place called Moab now for us To really appreciate the gravity of the the whole book of Ruth, because Ruth being a central figure in it, I think we probably need to understand Moab a little bit. In Genesis 18, the men in Sodom and Gomorrah are so sinful, so fleshly, so sexually immoral that God destroys the entire city except for Lot and his two daughters, those are the only ones who make it out alive. And when Lot and his two daughters are in a cave and trying to find what they're going to do with the rest of their life, the oldest daughter gets the bright idea to get their dad intoxicated. And the oldest daughter goes in and is with her dad on night one. And then the next night, they get him intoxicated again, and the youngest daughter is with their dad, and night two. Both of them become pregnant. The oldest daughter has a son whose name was Moab. That is the father of all the Moabites. And from that point forward, what we need to know about the Moabites, that is about 50 miles east, southeast of where Bethlehem was, we need to know that everything that God was for, they were against. And everything that God was against, they were for. Worship of Baal, worship of other gods, ritual worship that involved sexual immorality. They were violent, but they were also cultured. It was a trade place. But they were constantly going up against the Israelites and vying for power and control and authority. And this is the people. I would even tell you this. You need to know, like in Psalm 108, I believe it is, God calls Moab his washpot. His washpot, pot. Meaning, meaning like the pot that he would stick his feet on to wash his feet where all the dirt and the grime would go. That is the opinion of Moab. As a matter of fact, it wasn't necessarily illegal within the, the economy of God to marry a Moabite the way that these boys did. But if you did, they could not enter the place of worship for ten generations. And so When we think about darkness and the darkness of Israel's sin and the darkness of their famine and the darkness of going to Moab, we need to realize that this is drastic. This is severe. Elimelech is saying, I'm carrying my family to a place that is so different from what my God prioritizes. And that's where they are. And in the midst of this, we see the darkness of death. We see the fact that Naomi has gone with her husband and followed his leadership, and so have the boys, and as they've arrived and are beginning to live there, you know that she's isolated. She's isolated away from her siblings, her parents, her grandparents, her neighbors, her routines, her culture, her customs. She's completely isolated and feeling alone, and all of a sudden, her her husband dies. And then the boys, Malon and Chilion. Chilion. They both marry these Moabites in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a grand act of, of, I guess, being daring or, or testing. They, they marry Ruth and Orpah, and not long after that, those boys die. And, and it's like if she couldn't feel darkness anymore, she's stuck in this Isolated place among these pagan people without a husband, without adult sons, all alone as a female in a very violent culture. Can you feel the darkness that she must have felt? Well, the Lord certainly wants us to feel it because out of the darkness is where he often shines the light of his glory, the brightest. Let's go to the second scene. Scene two is devotion. Devotion. There are really three expressions of devotion in verses six and following. The first attempted, a, 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 attempted expression of devotion is Naomi toward her two daughters-in-law. She looks at them and, and she's like, okay, where well, we're going. And apparently they don't get very far, maybe not even a mile out of town. And Naomi looks at Orpah and at Ruth and just says, wait a minute, y'all cannot go. You you cannot go. Your, Your family is here. Your people are here. Your gods are here. Your culture is here. Your customs are here. If you were to come with me, y'all are, y'all are Moabites, you're, not, you're, not, you're gonna be as accepted in Israel and in Bethlehem as I was in Moab. You're, and, and plus, there's no way you're, you're gonna be able to, uh, to, to, to wait and marry. I'm, I'm too old to give birth to any sons, but even if I was, you'd have to wait 15 or 20 or 25 years for that to ever even happen. You need to go back. I'm expressing my love and my devotion to you. What you really need to do is go back. And the women they, they're, they're moved by her love and they cry and they weep and they hug and everything else, but they say, no, we're gonna go with you. And so here we see, here we see Orpah's attempt at devotion. She says, no, we're gonna go with you. And so she kisses her and she goes, I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. But, 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 but Naomi says, wait a minute, I, I need y'all to go. I need you to leave. And so Orpah does exactly what Naomi asked her to do and she turns around and leaves and goes back to her people and to her place. Now, these are two, I think, admirable signs of devotion. Naomi to the young women and Orpah to Naomi. But what clearly is the spotlight and what clearly is amazing is the expression and the resolve and the passion of the the commitment, the devotion that Ruth has to Naomi. Let's read it again. I think it's worth just laying our eyes on it. Verse 16 and following. Ruth said, in a very firm tone, "'Do not urge me to leave you "'or to return from following you. "'For where you go, I will go, "'and where you lodge, I will lodge.'" Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. If you count the number of commitments that she makes to her mother-in-law right here, it is seven. It is a seven-fold commitment, devotion to her mother-in-law, which is to say it's a total devotion. It's an all-in devotion. Like There's no questions asked. I'm with you. Now, it's an amazing expression of devotion. But what we've got to ask is, what is being, what is rooted in this? Like we don't know the whole story. We, we, don't, we don't know what life has been like for Elimelech and Naomi and, 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 and Malon and Chilion and Orpah and Ruth. We don't know what those years have been like or those seasons of life. We don't know exactly what it's like, but I, I think that we can assume this. I think that we can assume that Ruth the Moabitess has been in and around the family of Naomi and in and around Malon and Chilion and Their worship of Yahweh, the way that they interact with one another, the the prioritization of Yahweh's priorities of having one God, singular worship, honesty, fidelity, truth, love things that that he prioritizes she senses are different than what the Moabite way of life is and the Moabite worship is and the Moabite culture is. And the more she's been around that, the more she's drawn to that. And the more she's drawn to that, the more she wants to be like that. And so here she is, she's saying, I know these are my people. I know this is my family. I know this is where we worship." I know that I have these customs that I'm, that I'm accustomed to and I've gotten used to, but I wanna say goodbye to all of that because I want to follow you and be with you and I want your God to be my God and I'm gonna be faithful to you and to him for the rest of my life. And as a matter of fact, not only am I gonna give a sevenfold total commitment, I'm going to make a vow on my, I will die if I turn away from you before I fulfill my obligation. That's an all-in commitment that she makes based upon her understanding of Yahweh and his way of life for his people. The third scene that we see is in 19 through 22, and it's the scene of daylight. Daylight. Now, we see daylight in a few ways. First, they make it north and west and around back to Bethlehem safely. If you think about it being 3,000 years ago, two women traveling on their own on a rough terrain among rough people, and they make it that distance without being harmed or killed, that, that's a sign of God's grace as it is. But we also see the, the daylight of, of companionship, and I want us to just take an observation of that. If you look, Ruth is right there with her. Ruth is right there encouraging. Ruth arrives into Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, right there with her. But Naomi not once recognizes the blessing of having Ruth beside her. Have you ever been sick? Like really sick, laid up in the bed? Maybe have a fever, struggling, bones are hurting, body's aching, and somebody that's close to you who loves you is grabbing that extra blanket and tucking it over your shoulder and providing you a, a cup of water and medicine and a wet rag to go over your head. And, and you're so miserable and you're so struggling that you can't even think to be thankful. You can't even think to express gratitude because you're so stuck in the misery of what you're experiencing. That is what's going on with Ruth here. She doesn't say, hey, look at my daughter-in-law. Hey, that she's committed her faithfulness to her. She's such a wonderful gal, I'm so glad. She doesn't say one thing. She says, I'm bitter. I was full. I'm now empty. Why are you looking at me? Why are you guys talking about me? I've been left for dead, essentially. And yet, God was providing his daylight of companionship and love and friendship all the while. And then he provides the daylight of provision You know, they're going to have a place to stay. They're going to have a people to be with. And then they're going to have food to eat. The whole passage started off with the darkness of drought and famine and struggle. But if you look at verse 22, the writer gives us a peek into the daylight that's coming. Because it says at the very last verse, And they came to Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, at the beginning of barley harvest. What God is saying to Naomi and ultimately to Ruth is that I'm going to provide what you need. I'm going to provide what you need. I'm going to provide what you need. So in this passage, I think we can draw this conclusion. In the deep darkness of life's sorrows, the Lord provides who we need and what we need for abundant life. In the deep darkness of life's sorrows, the Lord graciously provides who we need and what we need for abundant life. That's what we see in the life of Naomi from chapter one. Now, when I ask the question, how does this chapter point us to Jesus Christ? We know that Jesus told those men as he was walking along the dusty road on the day of his resurrection, he told them, listen, everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the law points to me. All those things point to me. And whenever I approach a passage of scripture, I say, well, how does this passage point us to Jesus? The first thing that that I saw was, was the fact that that Ruth experienced darkness, okay? She experienced great darkness. We talked about it, the darkness of famine, the darkness of bad leadership, the darkness of of isolation, the darkness of fractured relationships, the darkness of the death of her loved ones and all of that. And I wanted to to meditate for a while on, on the realization that though she experienced great darkness, she did not experience the darkness that Jesus himself experienced on the cross so that he could take away the deepest darkness and the blackest darkness of her heart and her life and her eternity so that she can ultimately have the daylight of love and worship and honor. Now, we could meditate on that for quite a while. That points us to Christ because Jesus, even though we think we experience darkness, Jesus experienced the deepest of darkness on our behalf. But I really want us to, to think about something that we see in Ruth under that heading of devotion. Because Ruth was devoted to Naomi. She was committed, loyal, faithful. Oh man, that, that, that we could have a friend or a relative that was as devoted to us as Ruth was to Naomi. That we could be a friend or a relative that was as devoted as Ruth was. But what I feel like we need to really meditate on right now in this moment is that another person's complete devotion is an amazing thing and a gift of grace from God. It is not sufficient for life now or for eternity. We need someone so devoted to us that they will never leave us, they will never forsake us, and they will never die on us. We need someone so devoted that they will provide perfect counsel when we're confused. We need someone so devoted that they will provide perfect comfort when we are inconsolable. We need someone so devoted that they will provide a powerful presence when we are about to crumble under the weight of grief and despair. So devoted that they will provide perfect peace when we are filled with anxiety and worry. We need someone so devoted to us that, they, that their devotion supersedes the happiness of a six-day vacation, or a pleasant meal out, or a trip to Disney World, or a brief kind of weekender with a spouse that relieves us from the pressures of daily life. We need someone who is ever-present, who is always with us, always for us, always in us, who is able to speak into our lives, who is able to be powerful over our lives and our circumstances. We need the devotion of an ever-present, ever-perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely wise, infinitely loving person who is not bound by time or space, who is always with us, always for us, and always in us. And that person is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let, Let me just say this. Um, your wife can't be that devoted. Your husband can't be that devoted. Your best friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend nobody on this planet can be as devoted as you need them to be to provide everything that you need. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is that devoted. So call on him, rely on him, believe in him, trust in him, lean into him, learn from him, listen to him. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am the bread of life, and I have come to provide the sustenance that you need. I am your light, follow me as I lead you down my path. I am the good shepherd, I will provide and protect you. I am the resurrection and the life. You will not die because with me, you live forever. I am the true vine and in you, when you are grafted into me, you will find sustenance and nourishment and prosperity as you yield yourself to me. Jesus is the perfect friend. So, life is good but it's also very hard. I think it was Ian Duguid who commentator who talked about life kind of having the, the backdrop of, of black velvet. And uh, for you husbands who have purchased a, a diamond for your wives, you know that when you go into the store and they pull out the various diamonds, they don't just stick that thing on a, like a, a white tabletop. They don't stick it on just uh, see-through glass. They, they, they stick that diamond on black velvet. And they talk about the, the four C's. I can't really remember the four C's. It's like clarity, cut, uh, whatever, contours. I'll make them up as I go. All right. Um, but they talk about that. And so they turn that diamond, and that black velvet makes every little beauty, that, very, that every little like detail of that diamond stick out. And, it, and, and if they're doing their job well, you're like, man, that is beautiful. I want that. And y'all, our life is not intended to be rainbows and cupcakes and laughs and giggles. Our life on earth is intended to have a black backdrop. So that when the Lord Jesus does his work inside of us as he sticks to us and loves us and never leaves us and chisels out our idolatry and our pride and all of those things, the watching world can look at us as a diamond with the black backdrop of our suffering and sorrows and say, that is beautiful.